Hello and welcome to Talking HE, my name is Antony Vassant. In this episode we speak to Dr Paul Penn, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the University of East London and the author of The Psychology of Effective Studying, How to Succeed in Your Degree. We discuss effective note-taking, breaking studying into smaller chunks and what lecturers can do to promote effective studying in the methods that they use for teaching. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, um, my name is Paul Penn. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of East London. And um, I have a particular interest in, if you like, the psychology of the way people go about studying um, and learning and how we can improve kind of university level provisions, uh, you know, for teaching and learning and, and making sure that students not only succeed in their degree programmes, but actually enjoy the process of studying rather than think of it as something that has to be endured, you know, rather than enjoyed. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's me in a nutshell. Thanks, Paul, for joining us on Talking HE. I'd like to start off by asking you what are the most effective ways that students can study? Right. Okay. Well, the first thing I think is is to know students need to be aware of the fact that that often intuitive ideas about effective ways to study are, are often wrong, and students can often leave you know further education and you know secondary school and just go up the chain, um, whilst having and entertaining these ideas of studying which are just really not effective. So this idea, for example, of you know thinking that it's really just a, a mental muscle approach to reading. The more times you read something, you know, eventually it will sink in by some sort of weird form of osmosis or something like that you know the highlighter pen is magic and if you highlight something you know you're gonna all the perennial favorites you know which which research has indicated that 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 are indeed what students tend to use Uh, and they tend to be quite cynical about other methods you know that we know from the psychological research work um but ostensibly seem a little harder to implement or a bit more difficult to to deal with initially like you know practice testing for example so really the battle I think for the for us as educators and for the students first of all is to to know that the way that you feel about what works and what doesn't work intuitively probably doesn't accord with what we know objectively works and what doesn't work so this is the idea of metacognition really it's that insight into your own ability to sort of learn and the your your perception of the how much you know and how much you've learned as it were so i think that's the kind of first thing that that students need to sort of look into and understand. Uh, And we have a big role in that and we we can talk about how that can be achieved later. Um, But I think that's a revelation for a lot of students because their their attitude is, well, I've, I've, you know, I've crammed and I've, I've just reread things over and over this far and it's got me, you know, into college, into university. So it must work. Why should I change now? And, you know, the understanding of, yes, but it's probably been really boring, really monotonous for you. It's taken an awful lot of work. It probably hasn't got you the results you would have got otherwise. And if I were to ask a simple question like how much of the stuff you crammed for, for example, for one of your GCSE or A-level exams, can you remember? They'll say um, very little. And that's the consequence sometimes of using ineffective methods of studying. It's not that they don't always work in the short term okay, but they don't really promote any kind of long-term retention of material and long-term understanding. So that's kind of the first thing. Other sort of practical advice that I always tell students is things like, you know, when you're in a lecture, particularly now when we're in the area of lecture recordings and dual delivery and all that kind of stuff, is don't try and frantically scribble out notes and, you know, and just try and verbatim take as much of what the lecturer is saying as possible. You know, apart from the, the, the very practical consideration that it's being recorded so you can just play it back at your leisure anyway. 
way. You know, you're not going to learn when you're trying to multitask like that. And it's very rare that you get a professor that will speak slowly enough for you to better keep up anyway. So, um, but, you know, as a lecturer, you get this all the time and students will say, can you slow down, please? You know, because I, I can't keep up. And your immediate response is, well, what is it you've learned from psychology that suggests to you that just frantically scribbling down what I'm going to say is going to help you remember it? And of course, the answer is, well, nothing. It's not the way your memory works, basically. So that kind of thing, when you're a lecturer, you know, just listen and engage with the lecturer. Um, you know, the notes come afterwards when you're dealing with the material afterwards. There's much more to learning than just attending the lecture and, and scribbling down as much as you can. Um, similarly, I think when you've got, when you're actually in the process of note taking, don't fall into that trap of just trying to copy out what someone else has written or, or you know, God forbid, use the copy and paste, which is a terrible idea. Because, again, it, it's denying you that engagement with the material and making it personally meaningful to you and integrating it with your own experience and your own um, your previous knowledge. All of that stuff is what allows you to kind of assimilate new information. And if you're just copying down someone else's understanding of a topic, you're not you're depriving yourself of what your memory actually wants you to do, which is to reconstruct knowledge. Um, you know, highlighters, uh, we've all seen it, people turning their, their work into a, you know, a work of modern art, looks like it belongs in some Tate exhibition or something, you know, and it would be great if highlighters did work as some kind of weird optical scanner that transmitted information straight to our brains. Uh, it doesn't. Um, the research, unfortunately, on highlighting is, is generally very... Uh, well, very mixed would be generous. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that the take home message of the research is that um, generally speaking, it, it, it doesn't really work. And where it does work, it's not the highlighting per se. It's the thought process that goes into what's being highlighted that matters. Um, and what you tend to find is students that rely on it the most and use it the most extensively get the least out of it. You know, so there, there's kind of another practical tip. Um, I think also just kind of generally, um, you know, lose the fear of testing, lose the idea of testing that it's something that we do to you to assess your knowledge and to assign you a grade. Instead, look at it as what it is, which is a really powerful aid to the learning process. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and if, if you're not getting formative assessments, you know, MCQs and that from your course, set your own, you know, frequently test your knowledge of material. Don't assume that you, you know something because you think you do. Again, it comes back to the idea of intuitive knowledge about what we think we know is often erroneous and it's often quite flattering. And it's only when you get into the exam that you suddenly realise, oh, crap, I didn't know anywhere near as much as I thought I did. So, you know, testing yourself gives you that kind of metacognitive correction and it allows your memory to say, OK, well, I know this, I don't know this. I need to you know, spend more time and effort invested in this aspect of the topic. You know, uh, that's all really valuable information. Um, there's the old usual advice of avoiding cramming, you know, try and space your studying out, avoid these kind of, you know, all day, 12 hour, you know, sessions where you're just trying to cram all the material in. You know, there's there's literally 100 plus years of research in psychology that says that's not going to work for you. You know, there, there are very few ideas that are pretty much uncontested in psychology. We're a rather argumentative bunch. But the idea that if you have a period of time to study, you should break it up over smaller sessions rather than cram it all in is pretty much uncontested. It's called the spacing effect. Similarly, the idea of using testing, self-testing, the you know, retrieval practice, um, you know, the testing effect. It's one of those ideas that's so, um, so uncontested and so well supported, it's almost axiomatic if you're a psychologist. So, you know, really take advantage of that. And the other thing, which is always a good tip, and it's something people don't talk enough about, is make sure you learn and you practice applying marking criteria for assessments. Never go into an assessment blind. 
you know, and think the, you know, I think I understand the marking criteria and have a go at it. It would be like going into an interview and not reading the person's spec for the job. You know, how, how can you orientate your responses to the interviewer's questions if you don't know what they're looking for? Similarly, you know, if you're if you've got an assessment or it's an essay or a group presentation or whatever else, if you don't know how you're going to be assessed and you don't know what a good performance looks like, you cannot adapt your performance to satisfy the demands of the assessment. And it is remarkable sometimes how many students don't have a good command of marking criteria before they actually do an assessment. And, and by doing that, you know, just throwing away marks. So um, so that's something as well. Um, I definitely advocate as a, a general approach. Um, that's probably enough to be getting on with, isn't it? I've talked at you for like about four minutes now, so. No, that's fine. Um, I, I wonder if we can touch a little bit about what staff can do to make sure that their students learn more effectively. What can, what can staff do um, in their teaching um, specifically? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and the first thing is to is to kind of highlight to students their 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 idea about what they know, and and that their kind of metacognitive awareness might be flawed and. You don't really want to preach at people in that respect. You can do that very organically by, for example, starting off a, a lecture with a question, um, which you're going to provide the answer to during the course of the lecture, or giving them a practical scenario of an applied problem that calls on the material you're using. And what that does is two things. It gives your audience a reason to listen to you, because I think quite often people assume that because people have turned up, they're automatically interested in what you've got to say. Um, but it might be because, you know, they're being polite. Yeah, they yeah, exactly. You, know, yeah. you always have to earn the audience's attention. And do, a good yeah. way of doing that is saying, I've got something that you don't know and you need to know. Uh, and so, you know, actually opening a lecture with, with, you know, a question or an applied problem and saying, how could we go about solving this is a really good kind of metacognitive wake up call for students. And, and, it, and it gives them a reason to listen to you and it gives them a basis to interrogate the advice that you're giving them or the, the guidance or the information you're giving them in the lecture. Because in the same way that you don't go to a book, if, you know, if you want to get anything out of it with, a, with a, you know, a blank mind, as it were, you go to a book or a source with questions in your mind. Because uh, if you don't have questions, you can't get answers. Um, so that's another reason it's always a good idea to start off a, a lecture or something with a question, as opposed to just sort of piling into the, um, the answers. So that's one thing. You sort of stimulate that curiosity and give students reason to question how much they know about a particular topic and the adequacy of that knowledge. Um, another thing I always find really, really good, um, just to avoid getting into that kind of two hours of chalk and talk thing, is really make an effort to try and mix up the contents of your lecture. Um, so, for example, you might do 15 minutes of chalk and talk, then you might give perhaps a discussion opportunity or you might perhaps show some multimedia or you could do um, perhaps an applied problem that you work on with the students together. But what you tend to find in attentional research, there's a lot of kind of... Um, I'm trying to think of a polite word for it. A lot of nonsense talked about attention in class. And, you know, there's the old adage about, oh, anything more than 15 minutes is a waste of time. And that it's really not how attention works at all. A lot of people tend to think of attention as kind of almost like a torch with a very rapidly discharging battery. Um, you know, as soon as, you know, as soon as the batteries run out, you, you're, you're pretty much screwed. That's it, as it were. But the way it really works, when you actually look at studies that have been done reasonably well methodologically on attention, is that people's attention sort of comes and goes like the tide almost. 
And, and it happens even as early as a few minutes into a lecture. People will start to drift off. They realize they're drifting off. Then they come back. Then they drift off a little bit and they come back. So it's, you know, it's this kind of vacillation. But the way you can you can try and intercept that is by not letting people habituate to their surroundings. So if you give them a bit of a talk and then you actually engage them and you ask them to participate in an activity or take part in a discussion or, or just watch something different, have some different stimulus, it, it's like an attentional palate cleanser. What it, what it actually does is it not only keeps people on task, but what the research tends to indicate is that by, by changing tack and using a different mode, if you like, what comes after that mode, you get a brief attention boost. It's that novelty that we like. You know, As soon as we see something change, we, we tend to attend to it more. So a simple thing you can do in your lectures is just think about how you swap between different modes of teaching uh, and try and mix it up a bit. Mm. Um, Another thing as well, I think, which sometimes people perhaps don't take into account enough is don't be frightened to test your audience's understanding. You know, sometimes I think, particularly with new lecturers, the one thing they'll do is try and cramp that they're so frightened of running out of steam or, or running out of information. But, and I've done this myself and I probably still do it sometimes, to be fair. But you cram so much in that it's it, not only is it a one way conversation, but you're not giving the audience a chance to reflect on what they've taken in and what they need more help with. So then when you ask for questions, no one knows what the questions are they want to ask because they haven't had a chance to figure out what they've understood and what they haven't really got their head around, as it were. So, so that's really important. And it could just be using something like um, having discussion breaks. If you're a bit fancy and you like technology, there's some research, good research on polling software. Uh, I always forget what they're called. One's Mentimeter, I think, isn't it? And the other one is... Um, Poll Everywhere. Yes, that's it. So those kind of software, that can be really good. Um, it, it breaks up session again, but it also gives a chance for you to test the, the understanding of your audience. Um, and I think as well, one thing that could be really useful um, is to kind of think about the process of feedback as well. This is kind of a bit outside of the lecture theatre, but I think it's something that people tend not to focus on as much as they should. They look at feedback from a provisions point of view rather than a recipient's point of view. Uh, Naomi Winstone and her colleagues have done some really good research on this. Uh, and it's based on a principle that, you know, it's sort of self-evident if you're an educator, which is that feedback is only useful if it's actually used. If you give someone feedback and they just, you know, file it under F and forget it, you know, it, they're not going to benefit from it. And often the, the, the problem that students have with feedback is not that they don't understand the feedback per se, but they just don't know what to do with it. You know, how do I use this information to actually improve? So sometimes actually having that, that kind of instruction and having that facility where students can actually follow up on the feedback and actually maybe have an assessment design where they can do it almost like draft and redraft is a really good way of, of you know, stimulating engagement and, and improvement, which is what we're about. It's not always about getting a first the first time you do something. Often it's about getting it wrong, getting some corrective feedback, implementing the feedback and then doing better the second time uh, and that's the essence of learning and I think yeah. some too often students think learning is you get one shot you get one go that's your mark and then you move on and you never come back to it again but but that's that's not it's certainly not how it should work unfortunately sometimes the way the modules are run and the, the modular system generally it can be quite difficult to do that kind of assessment but you should always have provisions where students can come to you and follow up on feedback uh, and you know and learn from it because then they'll use it but if it has no utility, you can't be surprised when they just think, well, thanks very much for the mark and I'll put the rest aside and um, won't bother with it, as it were. So, so that's something as well, I think. And again, I'll, I'll stop there because I might otherwise just talk and talk, as it were. No, it reminds me of a, um, um, 
a CPD session I did, one of my first actually as a secondary school teacher with Professor Paul Black, um, an emeritus professor of um, education, talking about no mark marking and how you know you don't give a mark and then you get them to to look at the feedback because of that. But actually, better way, as you say, is to kind of have that feed forward idea, yeah. Um, yeah. which is more powerful when they're when they're. Is, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I've heard the no mark marking one before. Uh, the issue with that sometimes is that. The research does indicate that students can be very reluctant to come forward to tutors for for help and, and and kind of holding them to ransom with their mark, particularly for some students who may be particularly shy or perhaps have social anxiety or for various reasons, maybe, you know, can't maybe can't make it in for an in-person meeting, although that's less serious now we've got teams and all that um, in effect. Um, it, it can be a little bit. Um, sort of you know a problem for them but but something I think it's that's a kind of almost like a negative way of, of trying to get engagement I think it, it's better where possible to try and positively reinforce people and and um, give them a reason to want to use the facilities and the services um, and a good example of that generally actually is you know um, we probably touch on this with institutional level but you know study skills you know we're still using the term study skills in that and let, let's face it that has probably a lot of pejorative baggage for a good reason <laughs> you know um but if you then if you dress it up and what well, i say dress it up it is presenting it authentically as this is what psychology says about how we learn and how you will get the best results that is transformative in and of itself and then if you present it you know, and you treat students like adults and you look at the research and you treat it every bit as academically rigorously as you would um, subject specific content. It's then seen as much more interesting, much more legitimate, and you get that much more buy in. But if you if you sort of maintain the old way of, well, there's a separate study skills course or a separate, you know, then people, I think, naturally are, are a bit turned off by that. The last question I wanted to ask, Paul, was what are educational leaders not doing with regards to the psychology of effective study? Oh, God, this could be an opportunity to rant here, couldn't it? I guess I, I shall try and rein myself in a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as not to get us all into trouble. Um, yes. Okay. I think, I think but there are some things I think that are a bit uncomfortable, that, but that do need to be acknowledged. Um, and I don't think I'm alone in, in thinking these things. And, and I did an article recently for um, Wonky magazine, which is a, which is a brilliant name. Um, and it really was questioning why, why metrics of quality um, for learning and teaching do not more closely and more rigorously assess university provisions for independent studying. Uh, and really, that was that was kind of derived from the fact that I, I'd, I'd done a little bit of just very, very rudimentary web searching um, to get an idea of how universities were providing advice to students for independent studying. And I started off, as would seem to be the common sense thing to do, with institutions that had obtained, a, a, you know, teaching excellence framework gold rating, because, well, in theory, they've been judged to be the best. So, you know, learn from the best. And I went to their, their public facing websites, you know, and with very little effort, I found six TEF gold related institutions that were promoting learning styles uh, as a way of trying to promote, you know, get students to learn more effectively. And I just thought immediately, I just thought we can't have that at any level. You know, that you wouldn't accept, for example, if we went to the Department of Psychology and they were teaching phrenology, you know, that would be laugh, laughable, basically. It would be considered so academically negligent as to be completely unacceptable you know and, and the, the probably course would be in a lot of trouble with uh, various quality measures and yet sometimes there is an acceptance of that kind of material um, when it comes to the most important thing that we do which is the scholarship of learning and teaching uh, and the research and the evidence base associated with that 
and you know, I don't exactly know why. I've got some theories. I think one of them probably is that because of the marketplace model of, of, of universities now, some of them are so determined to differentiate themselves with fads or with reference to things which seem laudable, like employability, which obviously we're all concerned about what happens to graduates after they um, graduate. But the problem is it opens the doors for a lot of um, uh, profiteering is the wrong word, but people that are really getting in there with fads and things that aren't evidence based, that don't really relate to learning and teaching. Uh, and that, you know, next year there'll be another survey that says, oh, guess what? It's it's this this particular attribute that you need to focus on most um, extensively now. And it's it's the same sort of pattern. You're thinking, do any of these surveys have any predictive validity? Is there any evidence that by focusing on this particular institutional priority, we're going to produce students that are more likely to get jobs, are more likely to be happy in those jobs and develop a career? And Because if not, then there needs to be, I think, much more focus on the core business of a university, which is teaching and learning. And just as an exercise, it's it's worth doing. Um, I, I just, again, went, went, went online and started looking at university slogans and things like that, you know. And, and what struck me quite often was, was how often there was no mention of the quality of the education or the learning experience or the teaching or the learning environment. You know, there, there were a lot of sort of marketing spiel um, about, you know, future orientated and, you know, lots of frameworks being mentioned. And you think there does seem to be something missing here about what we do, which is when did it become so... I don't know, marketing unpalatable to say we're really good. We understand what it is to teach well and to learn and to, you know, to provide a really stimulating environment. So I think that's one thing. I mean, you you might have a view on that, Santana, as well, as someone who's worked mm. in, you know, yeah. in things yeah. like that. Yeah, I, I, I do. I think it is um, that kind of marketization, as you say. Um, and it is something that, you know, at the end of the day, it, it brings enrollments and it brings people to courses but the actual um, quality of them in terms of both the, the design of the curricula um, which is something that I'm quite passionate about as you know and um, and also the way in which students learn you know the science of learning which you know I know from US colleagues ex-colleagues and, and, and you know, co- uh, friends in the US that that's something that they are very um you know, passionate about, and you know, they they class some of some of the research, and I'm not saying all of it is is, is bad or otherwise. You know, obviously, as you said, some of it is methodolog- methodologically um, unsound, but but some of it they 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 class as that sort of brick lit. You know, that's that stuff that happens. You know, in, in the UK, you know, over there, um, which is um, is unfortunate, really, because I think there is also some really good research, you know, by Professor Naomi Winston and and others in the field, um, and in books like yours, um, you know, that you've you've had out for a couple of years, um, that um, that really kind of um, promotes the the psychology of you know effective study and teaching and learning and and the um, and the importance of it. Um, but it's yes, it's not as um, it's not as um, valued, and sometimes you know it has been referred to as you know the, the the research around teaching and learning is almost the Cinderella of of, of research. You know, it's not it yeah. doesn't quite go to the ball. You know, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it doesn't quite go to ref um, three star or four star. Um, yeah, 
Well, I mean, that, that's exactly why I wrote the article, really, because my argument was, you know, if, if you want to understand a university's policy, you look at the irrelevant metric and reason backwards. And that tells you why they do what they do, because universities, you know, necessarily, I think, have to have to look good in terms of metrics and surveys and things like that. And if if the metric for the, the quality of a teaching and learning environment does not seriously and rigorously address the quality of advice a universities give to students about how they spend the majority of their scholarly time, i.e. engage in independent study, then universities have very little impetus to actually take that seriously. And, and I think that is something which desperately needs addressing. And I really hope whatever they do with the TEF, if it's being scrapped completely or revised or whatever, really takes that into account. Um, otherwise, we're going to have a case of meet the old boss, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, as it were. Um, I think there's things, there's practical things that universities can do here, though. Um, and I'm sure I, I'm preaching to the converted with you here, Santa Lou, but, um, you know, things like just making sure that if you've got policy around teaching and learning, it has real open channel communication with the schools of education and psychology you know no one should have to sit in a teaching and learning committee and mention things like retrieval practice or space practice and have people look at you as if you're from the planet zarg you know so th these should be concepts that are, that are that are integral to the way we do our business you know um it should be based around the science of what we know works as it were um, so, you know, it, it's really, it really needs to be, I think, and that's where there's a disconnect between sometimes policy level and, and pedagogy uh, and the people that, that generate the pedagogical research, which really needs to be addressed. Um, same with, I mean, universities do have, and to be entirely fair to them here, it's not uncommon for universities to have centres for excellence in learning and teaching. Uh, and that's great, um, but with a couple of provisos. You have to make sure they're staffed properly, um, there's proper investment. Um, particularly now we, we're going increasingly digital, we have to accept that academics are, are not content creators you know, de facto, and they don't necessarily understand the principles of multimedia learning. Um, you know, so we need training and support, and ideally staff are there to help us transition into that and support the transition into the digital age, because students are becoming very savvy to this now. Um, you know, we, we are dealing with generations of people that have only ever known YouTube, um, you know, what's it, Web 2.0. Uh, and universities, I think, have yet to catch up with this idea and are still using a very kind of slightly outdated model of um, the way that people obtain information and disseminate information. Um, it's weird. I was thinking the other day about, you know, impact ratings for journals. Um, and obviously, there's much more to an impact rating than just, you know, circulation or things like that. But in terms of if you have a, you know, a, a, a journal with a high impact rating, in terms of the people you'll get to and also the type of people you'll get to, if you want to get to the lay public and disseminate your knowledge to the, the lay public, which is the whole point of academia in many ways, you know, you'll be better off. It's not anywhere near as academically prestigious or it's not good for your career, as it were, but you could do so much more in, with social media you know, and things like that. And I think universities have been a little bit slow on the uptake there, as it were. Um, also as well, when it comes to things like centres for excellence and learning and teaching, there needs to be integration between what, it doesn't need to be a talking shop. Um, there needs to be integration so that what they, the things they come up with and the things they propose and the, the evidence they disseminate is actually used, you know, because the danger otherwise is that what happens is that everyone's busy, you know, uh, you know, lecturers, particularly in the last year, everyone's been overworked and a bit overwhelmed. And it's understandable that people are reluctant to to take on more work, more learning, things like that. 
And if 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 the Centre for Excellence in Learning and Teaching, or whatever it's called, is really only a, a, a recommendation shop, if you like, then what will happen is that the, the members of staff that are the most enthusiastic and have a bit of spare time will be the early adopters, but it won't necessarily be systematically incorporated into the course. Um, good pedagogical and good curricula and things like that has to be almost like you know very much at a fundamental level so it just becomes part of what you do part of the design of courses part of the expectations about lectures uh, and that's the last thing I'd say really is we need to remove ourselves from this idea which is patently false which is that a, a PhD is a teaching qualification and that if you know a member of staff has a PhD they'll better teach fine uh, it, it's it's really unfair to staff you know, um, and there needs to be more support for our evidence-based support for effective methods of teaching. Uh, and I think traditionally universities have been very reluctant to do anything about that because I think the concern has been it will be insulting for people. But again, it, it's about how you articulate it, how you present it. And, and if you treat it as, a, which is what it is, a legitimate academic topic with proper scholarship behind it, and if you treat it and the people with respect it and they deserve, then people are very happy to listen to this stuff and very happy to take it on board. But I think at the moment, it's um, there is the assumption that people just teach by virtue of the fact they've got a PhD and they're all good at it, you know, and if they're not, there's not much you can really do about it. Uh, and that's that's so sad because there's so many simple things you can do that are transformative when it comes to uh, to people's teaching. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, speak from experience as well as research here. It's just, it, it can be as simple as like, if you've got a, um, I've just forgotten what they're blooming called now, it's a slider device, you know, the remotes that control your PowerPoints remotely and some of yes, them have. Yeah, the Kensington clickers, yes. That's the technical name, isn't it? Um, you know, something like that, which then liberates you from the, po yes, you've got exactly the same one I've got as well. Um, Something like buying one of those, liberate or borrowing one from the uni, liberates you from being that static thing that hides behind the podium and tends to rely on PowerPoint slides on the screen as a crutch into this person that walks around and ad-libs and talks and engages and, and is interesting to look at. Simple things like that can make all the difference. Um, and then learning a little bit about multimedia design so your PowerPoint slides are you know, uh, not horrendous to look at. Uh, and, and I'm afraid this is where universities definitely have something to, to answer for, because the worst slides I've seen tend to come from um, <clears throat> higher up, shall we say, where you'll get these horrific slides. And it's just these huge framework illustrations with size six font and, and all these models. And you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah, you know, you yeah, shouldn't need a yeah. psychology. No, that's not an effective slide. <laughs> but it's, it's you know, we, we need to lead by example. It needs to come from the top. And and it, the fundamentals need to be addressed first and foremost, you know. And it needs to be evidence-based rather than fad-based as well. Mm. Um, and then properly incorporated into universities' teaching and learning policy. So it's actually adopted rather than just maybe discussed at a school level, teaching and learning meeting, and then never, never sees the light of day again, as it were. So what further support for staff and students is there on effective studying? In terms of support as well, this is something which I think institutions can do, which is be very receptive to a lot of, you know, open access support there is for, you know, scholarship and teaching and learning. And my own little contribution to that has been to set up a YouTube channel, um, Psychology of Effective Studying, named after the book. And that just contains, you know, short videos 
um, that are obviously free, free access on YouTube, that have advice on, you know, effective studying, and they're useful for students and for teachers. And I'm going to expand it into, you know, things like pr principles of good lecturing and stuff like that, uh, eventually as well. But that's expanding all of the time. And it's really nice to have an audience on board. So if people wouldn't mind visiting and subscribing to that, that would be wonderful. Um, of course, I have the book, Psychology of Effective Studying. Um, it's available, um, it's published via Routledge, available by all the usual culprits, Amazon and all that. Um, yeah, and I think I think that's been really well received because it's very conversational. You know, it, it doesn't talk down at people. It doesn't assume previous knowledge in psychology, but it also treats people with respect. And, and, and I, the way that I view it is I have to convince you um, as opposed to I'm just telling you as an authority. So, you know, I, I take great pains in, in that book to try and explain why things that seem intuitively effective might not work and, and offering an evidence-based solution as an alternative. Um, you know, and it seems to have been well-received and I've tried to make it a little bit funny in places and a bit less, you know, it's dry and stuffy like some academic texts can be. Um, but, I'd, you know, recommend that people look into this because there's a lot of material out there and, and making significant changes to the way that you go about learning or if you're a lecturer, the way you go about teaching really don't have to involve an awful lot of work or, you know, extra attention and extra investment of time and effort and that. Sometimes it's just having, knowing where to look, going to the right sources and extracting out a few principles can really make all the difference. Thanks to Dr. Paul Penn for his time. That's it from Talking HE. Until next time, I've been Santini Vasant and this has been Talking HE. Mm -hmm.